My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. Each and every week, we desire to take theological principles, biblical stories, and narratives, and all the genres of scripture, and help you immerse yourself in order to embody and apply them to your everyday life. I want to encourage you to tune into this online broadcast each and every week. And what's exciting is we now have this, hopefully, on YouTube and also Facebook Live, and also in our recorded podcast under our YouTube channel. You can look at all the old episodes as well. So ways you can support our ministry is first follow our Instagram page, like our Facebook page, and you can listen to this broadcast each week. That's how you can support us and make comments underneath on the social media channel of your choice. You can financially support our ministry through our website, resonatelife.org, and go to the Give tab. So you are joining us live on Thursday night at 8.30 for this podcast, and this will be replayed on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock as a part of our Sunday morning broadcast as well. So every Thursday night, we're coming together live to give a better understanding of the material that we are covering in this series. And we're calling this a deeper dive. And so if you've been following us online, you will remember that we are in the book of Exodus today. And we are discussing Exodus chapter seven, verse 14 through chapter 10, verse 29. That seems like a lot, but it's really just a repetitive story of the plagues. So tonight we are talking about three different things. The first is we're going to give a theory of in exegetical science. Second, we're going to talk about the plagues and what they really mean. And number three, we're going to talk about deconstruction and whether or not it's really that bad. So I am joined with Sherea Bodner and Jake Fluke, two of my leaders at Resonate Christian Church in Sherwood, Oregon, and I'm really excited to have them back on this online broadcast. Each week they join us. They are masters and intellectual geniuses in Hebrew, Greek, and scripture. And so welcome Sherea Bodner and Jacob Flug. So glad you're here with us tonight. Thank you. Okay. That's quite the introduction. I have to like expand that each time, you know, just like make it broader and broader and broader. All right. So here we go. Cause we have a lot to cover tonight and I am excited to go over the topics because we have been in an ongoing thread of conversation all week on these three different topics. And we're going to bring in some wild ideas just to get like let's just dance with the material that's what we're going to do so since, since we are dancing with material um ours <laughs> i will be watching our chat bars on both youtube yes. and facebook so if you do have questions or you want us to address something uh chime in i'll be i'll be integrating those into our conversation as we as we go along if you just want to awesome. say hello that'd be great too good all right. Well, hopefully our friends are listening tonight. And what we notice is the number of people that comment and text us and tell us that they watch grows through the week. And so we have a group that listens to us live and then by Sunday morning, 
uh, hopefully you have embraced some of this material, thought about it. You've listened to this every day, hopefully every day, just to absorb all of the nuggets that we give you on the book of Exodus. All right. So here we go. We are going to propose first an, a theory within what I'll call exegetical science. I chose this because I do appreciate science. I love science and I don't believe in science. I listen to science. I hear science. I absorb science and science is a lot of different theories that are put together to come up with a hypothesis and some conclusions about how the life, the universe, molecules, cells, the body, whatever science you're in, the rocks of the earth, geology, how it all works, where it all came from, where we're all going. <clears throat> so science is not something to believe in. Science is something to work with. Science is something to absorb and think through and to bring th new theories to the table that possibly haven't been theorized before and then flesh them out. So we're going to flesh out a new theory within exegesis of Exodus. Exegesis just means taking scripture and pulling it apart and thinking about what's really there and what's not there and doing word studies and such about ancient texts. And so with the book of Exodus, uh, really, it's just, uh, it's just an exercise of figuring out why it was written, who it was written to, the purpose of which it was written um, to those people. And can we even apply it to our lives? And is it applicable today? So that's what exegesis is. Science then is theorizing and hypothesizing about what could be the greater purpose of Exodus. So I'm going to propose a theory. And I gave my two guests the theory already. So they know what the theory is. But I just want to give this theory. I'm proposing a theory that the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus can be overlaid as the story of the totality of the universe from beginning to the ends of all things and a reoccurring sin and grace cycle. I'm going to repeat that again. I'm proposing a theory that the book of Exodus can be overlaid as a story of the totality of the universe from beginning to the end of all things, what we would call the revelation or the end times, with a reoccurring sin and grace cycle within it. So what do you guys think of my theory? It's a crap from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's possible, but we're going to flesh it out, right? Yes, I hope so. I mean, if we're talking about creation and recreation and Exodus is a creation recreation type story, and we're about ready to get into the plagues and we're going to propose that as well in the plagues, that the chaos of the plagues is like disorder. Mm -hmm. And then basically the, the Exodus or the Israelite people going through the water, of course, splitting water means salvation. That is a redemptive idea. And there's a recreation type idea. So if that is our beginning point of like the thought of why Exodus is even Exodus, 
let's talk about creation, recreation. Where do we see that? Let's repeat. Let's summarize. Let's think through. Shreya, kind of pull us through that idea of creation, recreation again. Um, like an example, the first sure. example that came to mind was Moses being drawn out of the water, um, which is like a splitting of the water. Um, so it's like a new beginning. Splitting of the water in, in Genesis where it says that mm -hmm. God split the waters from dry land and also from beneath to above the head, right? Yes, yeah, so right. we have the splitting of water. But why is this a recreation story? Teach me that again, because I can't remember. I remember. Go, Never mind. Go for okay. it, Trey. Go for yeah, it, Trey. Go for it, Trey. Go. I'm pushing you there. Well, I was just going to... Maybe they all are? Maybe what all are? Maybe all the stories are recreation stories. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Like, it just seems like that every story in the New Testament or the Old Testament can be like pulled back to this idea of recreation, right? Especially like, in, mm -hmm. in, the in the first two first books, five. if not the first five, yeah. where right. the same author put all of those together, if we say it like that that the, the same motifs would have gone through. So you're supposed to read Genesis and Exodus as one, as one tome, not split up mm -hmm. into two sections right. that didn't, didn't ping off of one another. And so in Exodus, you have lots of language that repeats from the creation account, the splitting of water, the pulling from water. They crossed over into dry land, like day three of the creation narrative. And you have... Um, God speaking through creation in Exodus often and um, into a new, a new beginning. And you have an image of, of Noah starting over again into a, mm -hmm. another land that uh, Noah didn't know. And so Exodus is a whole yeah. and we'll get through, get through all of that. I think later, especially when we get into the desert, the desert mm -hmm. scene, um, there are strong motifs and connections that point best back to a recreative story. Right. Trey, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, not really. Like, okay. there's the example um, God looked at what God had made and it was good. And we've also got. Moses's mother looking at what she had made and calling Moses beautiful. Oh yeah. That's a great one. That is a great one. Can I take that? Can I write that down? Can we write that down please? Cause that was really good. So just to be clear, there's, there are people out there that believe that Genesis one, Genesis one, one and two uh, are literal that that's a historical telling. There are people like that. And, and so for those people that believe in a literal reading of Genesis 1 and 2, what we're talking about is a narrative literary recreation. So at some point, uh, whether or not you, you, know, you can believe that and we still go to heaven and I can believe something different, we still can go to heaven. That's not a salvational issue if you believe in, in the literal 
seven days or a metaphorical seven days or a Hebrew poem. I believe it was a Hebrew poem, Genesis one through two, just to be clear and to be transparent that I believe that that was one through three, one through three. Yeah. One through three is a Hebrew poem. The creation account is a Hebrew poem that, that shows a lot more than just a order of things or a, a creation order of things. Let's just call it that. So it's more of a story yet. I also believe that Exodus is a story too. And so that story can be recreated also in a literary sense in a different form. So any story, I guess, or a narrative that brings chaos to order. And I would say there would be need, tell me what you guys think of this. There would need to be in my theory, there needs to be the splitting of water to have it be a true creations type bringing of order, like Noah, the ark mm-hmm. splitting of water, creation itself, splitting of water, Exodus splitting of water. There has to be some form of or chaos to order and the splitting of water. Maybe. Um, I can okay. name a couple that aren't. Okay. Um, so in Jeremiah, Jeremiah unrolls the scroll and the, the unrolling of the scroll being green word uh, was a creative moment and decreation or like the destruction of creation is the rolling up the scroll. And so, and, 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 and if you follow, follow the, the scroll motif throughout the entire book of Jeremiah, um, at the end, when, when Israel, our Judah, I'm sorry, falls, the scroll is sealed. And so it's definitely really, reminds me of revelation there. Yeah. 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 It's, it's definitely, it, it, yeah 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 okay so i can buy that i mean that's good i think that there's multiple aspects of creation that could be duplicated in the narrative form to speak the same idea from chaos to order or opening the word the word of god speaks creation into existence yeah and so like even when the writers in the new testament if we go with the water motif when when Jesus' side is pierced and water pours out, that is an also a splitting of water mm-hmm. um, metaphor. Right. Okay. But there's just more to it, I think, creation than just water. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, another part of the theory, all right, is the idea at the center of the Hebrew creation account, Genesis one through three, the narrative that that idea right somewhere in that account, there's sin. So there's the fall of creation. There's the fall of humankind. So in creation, this depiction of Adam and Eve taking a, taking something and that could be rep- that could be anything, but taking something that they were told not to take. Basically doing something God said, don't do this. And they did it anyway. So the pride of life, the desire to know everything, the desire to be like God, then that becomes ultimately the 
to be like God or to mimic God or to get as close to being like God as possible. That's the promise. If you do this, then you get to be like God. That pride then becomes the sin. Correct and correct. Am I hitting at least some fire and at least on three cylinders out of four? Yeah, at least. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so here's the problem. And there's a problem that we're going to address later in this exegetical science exercise is why did the Israelite people end up in slavery? So if sin is a part of a creative narrative and in a recreative narrative, then, okay, where's the sin piece, right? I mean, where did they fall? And so it says, you know, that they grew in number and power and Pharaoh got afraid. We know that's a, that was a reality, um, that there's this fear element of Pharaoh, uh, but also, and here's a challenge, and we have to work through this challenge, because according to Ezekiel 20, Ezekiel 20 says that they, does anyone have that passage open? I do. Can you like read that really quick? Yeah. Verses seven through nine, right? Trey, I can't hear your voice anymore. Really? I can hear. Is that me? Yeah. Go ahead, Trey. Ezekiel okay. 27 through nine, right? Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Go ahead, Trey. All right. And I said to them, every one of you must cast away your disgusting things. Don't let yourself be defiled by Egypt's idols. I am the Lord, your God. But they rebelled against me and refused to listen to me. No one cast off their disgusting things or abandoned their Egyptian idols. So I declared that I would pour out my wrath on them and satisfy my anger against them in the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name so that it wouldn't be degraded in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made it known that I would lead them out of the land of Egypt. Do we tell heavy Kevin or no? Are you gone? Okay, well, we can just continue on and Kevin can catch up when he gets here. Um, one thing that we talked can you about. still hear me? Yes. Yeah. It's your, it's, okay. So can, I've lost you my us? sound. You lost your so let me, earpieces. I've lost my, this sound. You, and so the sin cycle uh, throughout the Old Testament is sin, down exile, old sin, exile, sin. He has no Keep idea what we're talking right now. I am. Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and when in in theory and what you look at here in exodus is that the hebrew people were forced into slavery and so therefore there must have been an initial like trespass that they had committed that they had done and in exodus especially in verse chapter one we get no <clears throat> correlation of, of what they did to deserve slavery you have what Kevin was saying right before we lost him. Can you hear us now, Kevin? Can you hear us now? I think now? so. Can you hear me? I can. Yep. Can you hear us? Yeah, I can. Yeah. Okay. Technological difficulty fixed. Just put in wired stuff and it works better. Can you hear me through this mic? Yes. Okay, good. 
so get me up to speed. Where were we at? I'll just continue going and you'll catch okay. up quickly. I'm sure. Sounds good. Yeah. And so the, when you look at Exodus, you have, he knew not Joseph. And so the new Pharaoh arose and this person didn't know Joseph. And so what that means that Israelite people or the Hebrew people didn't, they lost their position of power or their authority or their, their focus of knowledge, or you had, they grew in number and what else happened? And so in, Ezekiel chapter, whatever, uh, Helmiatria eight, 20, 20. Sure. Um, Ezekiel 20. Yeah. Yeah. You read that Israel, the Hebrew people moved from the God that saved them and put them into Egypt to Egypt's gods themselves. So they turned to idol worship and that is what landed them into the slavery. Okay. I mean, it says it. <laughs> what to do with that? It's like, so you're saying that oppression, and we're going to talk about this here in a minute. So we're going to put that on pause, I think. So oppression is caused from sin. Is that, no, 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 that doesn't, that's like yucky to me. So, mm -hmm. so we need to flesh that out a little bit. But, in a recreative narrative, the narrative doesn't have to explain. This is something that I thought of actually today. A narrative doesn't have to flesh out every theological, cultural, and sociological challenge that is presented. It's just telling a story. And it's our job to flesh out the theological, cultural, and societal problems within the narrative that we can read things in and we can pull pieces out. So for the sake of the theory, exegetical science, is that, that we find the sin piece. I just needed to find that sin piece. I needed to find the snake, right? Okay, so then in this tome of a reading, this is called, I know it's probably backwards to everybody, but this is called the Your camera mirrors. Oh, does it? Okay, good. good. The Gulag Archipelago. And this is by Sultan Nitsen. His name is right here. Sultan Nitsen. Sultan Nitsen was a Russian and he ended up in the Gulag, which is uh, the archipelagos, the, the archipelago islands that are up in the northeastern side of of Russia, the Soviet Union, the the USSR, it used to be called back in you know some days, but um, in ancient history, <laughs> but but the gulags were the prisons that prison prisons that they sent political prisoners to, intellectuals to, professors, teachers, preachers, anybody that had any form of intellect sometimes they just throw for absolutely no reason they started throwing people into the gulag nobody really knew the reason so they they had a universal innocence and so Solzhenitsyn talks about the universal innocence that happened that everybody is innocent and nobody's a part of the problem or nobody is the problem people so I I'm reading the book of Exodus and I see the, the slavery managers 
right? And the slavery, the slave managers were Israelite people that were put in charge of Israelite people. They were the ones that were started abusing their own people. Why would they do this? Right. But then you think, well, gosh, you know, 600,000 men. So, so 3 million people, let's say 3 million people couldn't have an uprising to overthrow Pharaoh and his 25,000 person army. I mean, you would think that at some point they would say, rise up and burn it, you know, burn it to the ground. So, so in Solzhenitsyn's theory of universal innocence is honestly, that's what sometimes keeps us in certain situations. It's a mindset, it's a mentality, it's a psychology. And it's, I would say, a part of the psychology of maybe even oppression, it like floats around in there somewhere that really needs to be careful about how we articulate that and what we say about that, because that can be very damning and can be very hurtful that, that we're actually saying that, that there's problem people within oppression or something like that. Right. So this idea of universal innocence after the fall of humankind, Adam and Eve and the tree, the fruit, the snake, the serpent, think about what happened like generations after that generations after that, you would say, well, I didn't do that. You know, I, I wasn't a part of that. Uh, and so we begin to have a theory or a philosophy of universal innocence that I want to talk about in oppression, more in oppression. Um, redemptive salvation then is the splitting of water. Now we're released from slavery and we enter into the water. God splits it in half and we run to the other side and the evil, the devil, the serpent, the snake, the cobra, right? It just seems like it just fits too well together. The serpent, you know, then is destroyed, put under, right? Put under water. Like the sin, the ultimate sin is baptized away in water. So there's some correlations there that you just, I mean, it's just too clean of a narrative. Where I struggle and I need a little bit of help is they get to the other side of the water and they end up in the wilderness eventually. So now we're back and like wandering. So, so that's another cycle. That's another, you know, trip around the, the, the track, you know? Uh, so what is the eternal realm? Do we have an eternal realm in this story? Is there an eternal I mean, is it the promised land, like the hope of entering the land? Mm. The book of Deuteronomy ends right as the Israelites are about to get there. So if if we see um, Levit Leviticus numbers Deuteronomy as a continuation of the Exodus story. Right. Then yes. Okay. Jake, do you have any like eternal realm for me? Um, it societal would be the promised land and moving towards it. Yeah. Uh, spiritual would be what they coined as Abraham's 
bosom. Okay. And that is the, I think, only two eternal realms you see in Genesis and Exodus. I have another thought. Okay. Um, when God gives all of the commands at the mountain, um, is that a picture of what this realm is going to look like? Even if they're not in the land yet, this is the sort of society you create. Okay. But so if I could push back a little bit, I feel like that that's like out there. So I'm proposing that this, this Exodus story can be overlaid and especially this piece of Exodus story all the way to, you know, the middle of the book when we cross the water and we're finally free and, you know, sin, the snake, the serpent has been, you know, washed away. And then we're entering into this new, like, like eternity, right? This new picture. Can I propose something? I thought about okay. this all day long. I'm like, there's gotta be an eternal significance to this story. Otherwise it's like, well, okay. So this is just another sin cycle, right? Or this is just another evil cycle or whatever we want to call it. I want to propose Miriam's song is eternity. Want to read it for us? Oh, can I? Go for it. I never thought you'd ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a song of Moses and Miriam, right? I'll read the new international version. So Shreya, correct me if I'm wrong. Just knock me upside the head here. If this, I'm just thinking too in the clouds, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted both Horse and driver, he is hurled into the sea. This sounds like revelation to me. Just throwing it out there. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned into the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. That kind of like is, you know, put him under your feet. Type of thing. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who oppressed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. It's kind of like eternal, maybe dam damnation, you know, the gnashing of teeth. I don't know, just throwing it out there. <clears throat> By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. 
That's interesting. The surging water stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, I'm awesome in glory, working wonders. I mean, I just want to bust into a hallelujah chorus of revelation right there, right? I don't know. You stretch out your right hand and your swallows your enemies and your unfailing love you lead, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble anguish with grip. The people of Philistia, the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be still as a stone. Until your people pass by, Lord, until your people you brought pass by, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established, the Lord reigns forever and ever. It's a theory. It's a theory. I hear the connections to Revelation. Yeah. It feels at least as abstract as the commands in the wilderness. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> you know, I had trouble finding like the the hope of like we have the hope of entering the eternal realm. But right. then if it's a total to, to totality of the universe and the end of all things, what is the the ending or what is that final like hallelujah that all people will praise it it probably like turned the corner for me when it said this you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance okay. the place lord you made for your dwelling the sanctuary lord your hands established and so whenever we see the mountain, we've learned lots about metaphors. And so if we use that metaphoric exegesis and we look for the metaphor, the sign and the symbol and the, the picture, the mountain is where God lives, right? Right. And the inheritance that we receive would be on the mountain. That would be heaven. And so on this heavenly place, that's the sanctuary that the Lord lives Yeah. Okay. Settle. There's there's something there. <laughs> okay. I, well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna write a book and publish it yet. But. <laughs> I I would say that how the Hebrew people were being instructed to live from Mount Zion, and also what this what the Song of Miriam kind of has um, was to create heaven on earth and so yeah the eternal peace might just be that new community that is being established with out hierarchy 
where no one can get ahead of anyone because every seven years there's a massive reset and every 70 years an even bigger reset. Um, mm-hmm. And so there will, there will never be one person greater than the other and all are equal. Um, that a land is left furlough, that a creation is restored and healed. So you have, I think, especially as we get into the, the Sinai chapters, um, we are going to see God put forth God's vision of what heaven looks like. Perhaps not this erythral out of world. I don't know if I totally agree with the heaven is somewhere else. Sure, um, sure, yeah. Definitely. I don't think finished. any of us do. Being lied about that subject. Sure. Uh, the, heaven uh, always comes down to earth, by the way, folks. And you don't go up to down. heaven, heaven yeah. comes down to you. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I just wanted to propose that as an exegetical science theory that if we look at a recreation story, could we look at the totality of universe story and find it within the book of of Exodus? I'm sold, you know, (laughs) I'm totally sold because I was digging around and I'm like, okay, I can see it. And that's the beauty of narrative stories. The stories birth imagination. They birth like what could be and where we're supposed to go. And now we have this mountain and God is living up there in the sanctuary and let's go there. Uh, It just kind of gives us a lot of hope. That's what, that's what narratives do, especially recreation narratives. It shows us that God's, God's got a place for us uh, in the future. All right, let's get off of that. And, uh, and go to the plagues. Let's talk about those plagues. So we, COVID-19 gave us a taste of plague. Yeah. And so we, we kind of felt it. Uh, I can think of other like diseases that hit the earth that became very scary. We just watched full circle. I read a news article the other day that they are proposing that they healed a woman of HIV. Now at 49 years old, and I read that article just the other day, I got a little teary because I remember my grandfather and I in the living room and we were watching the news, Tom Brokaw, one of those old newscasters was on and they had given a number of how many people had contracted HIV And it moved out of like the thinking of it's only this one people group or it's only this one set of peoples, you know, that were spreading this. It went to more universal because, you know, it was like, okay, now it's, and the fear of like, is it airborne? Can it be spread in the classroom? And that boy, that young boy contracted HIV and, and then, you know, how the parents react, everyone was reacting and it was just scary, scary, scary. And we were sitting in the living room and he said uh, that the whole world was going to die. The next total (laughs) optimist. Yeah. Uh, But it felt that way. It felt like the whole world was going to die. The next time in my whole life that I ever felt that was two years ago with COVID-19, the whole world's going to die. That's what a lot of us, and we just felt it that the whole world was going to die. So we've had tastes, 
tastes of disease that hit the earth and wipe out huge populations, plagues that just, you know, you think about the bubonic plague or the Spanish flu or whatever you want to, whatever plague you want to pick. Um, just devastation and the feeling of loss. And so if we could embody that and think about that, when we start thinking about these stories of plagues, that they are massively devastating, not just, oh, flies, bugs, and, and blood and boils. You know, it's like, it's not a cartoon, although it's been made into a cartoon. Uh, it's not a cartoon. It's real. Go ahead, Jake. <clears throat> We are not saying that HIV, the Spanish flu, COVID-19, bubonic plague was God's no. Um, no. as a plague is not, not a God's retribution on humanity whatsoever. Not and saying so that. We, as, no. As we talk about this and we, we bridge that correlation, uh, we definitely set that flat that um, Thank those you. diseases that went around <clears throat> were not for the purpose of God seeking judgment on any sort of sin. And what I love about mythicized history is this is a narrative. This is a story that has a bigger picture than a plague. It has a bigger picture mm -hmm. than, you know, a disease that, that hits people. Um, you're absolutely right, Jake. God does not cause bad things to happen to people. God does not cause death. God does not cause all of these things. I will, I will, you know, tout that from the rooftops. So if you've lost somebody, if you are dealing with loss, even yourself, like you have cancer or you have thing, that is not God's like answer for you because you believe you're a sinner or something like that. That's just not the God that I know. So thank you for that clarification. So the plagues, let's, let's talk about the plagues. How many plagues were there? Up Which text? To 10. I know. So you got Psalms and they have a different, the Psalm has, the Psalm book, Psalms have different plagues. So in Psalm 105, we have eight plagues, right? Mm -hmm. Or do we have less than eight plagues? One, six two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, we have eight plagues. Yep. Six and one, 15. Uh, 78. Uh, 78, there's six plagues. And then, and of course, in Exodus, there's 10 plagues. So why the, why the difference? What does that mean? <laughs> it, means you it means we're drawing from several traditions. Oh. Again? <laughs> Again. <laughs> okay. So we have the, like three major tribes that are all contributing to the yep. book of Exodus. But then why Psalm? Like, why does Psalm mess it up? What's the deal? <clears throat> why does Psalm mess it up? <laughs> Psalm was written, the book of Psalms were written uh, long before yeah. exile. What? what? Yep. And so Psalms would be one of the earliest books in the Hebrew tradition. So are you proposing the theory 
that there could have only been six plagues or eight plagues or were there 10? Great question. No idea. And I think it has more to do with the story and the narrative than what actually happened. You mean that conversation really doesn't matter? Does not matter at all. (laughs) All right. So let's get into the story. Unless you have other things to contribute to the disparity. Well, we can despair all night. Just that when we see 10 in Exodus, um, to remember that 10 is still a symbolic number. Yes. Thank you. Forgot about that. 10 is the perfect amount of plague. So it's interesting in a narrative mythicized history that we went from six plagues to eight plagues, or maybe eight plagues to six plagues. But by the time in exile, maybe they wanted to speak something a little different. Maybe they wanted to really emphasize, hey, we're going to add two more plagues here that we know about. And if you're a historian, you're like a historical uh, literalist with the book of Exodus, maybe by exile, they had another document that said two more plagues. We need to add those in. Look at that. 10 plagues means a perfect amount of plaguing. Right? Plaguing? Is that a word? No. But okay. Okay. So let's talk about the relationship between the plagues and the Egyptian gods. Yep. Because that is, there's lots of, whether you're a progressive theologian or a conservative theologian or a fundamental theologian, it is hard to not see the reality that the plagues directly correlate with the Egyptian gods. And the message is that God is greater than your Egyptian gods and that he has power over the gods. So, so the literal, go ahead. We we just read that in the song of Miriam, that God was greater than all other gods of the Egyptians. And so it's just a retelling of this as well. Right. Right. So, we have here, uh, you have literal plague believers. And those are the people that would just believe in a history of the plagues that everything happened exactly the way that Exodus lays it out to be. Then we have a practical atheist. And I think a practical atheist would just look for natural wonders of the world, you know, that this just happened and there's a natural idea or a natural phenomenon that occurred to cause the sky to go dark or the the water to turn to blood or or what have you and then there's people like me that would be a narrative believer or a narrative subscriber that the story of the plagues have a higher reality than the plague itself and so if we just look at each plague and we can talk about each plague and what God that that is attributed to. I think we could get a handle on, on each one. So, Mm -hmm. so jump in, what plague do you guys want to take? I don't have my notes like that in front of me. All I remember is Ra as a sun God. And so when, when God blots out the, the sun, 
Uh, let me a... let me tell you where to find those notes, Jake. If you look on our text thread, you can open up the file and you can find <laughs> that file on your notes there. Thanks you gotta scroll you through that. some very long paragraphs though. Totally. Or you <laughs> can just go to your documents, open up the actual like um, thread and documents. Um, I got Pete ends in front of me, so I can at least yeah. pull out a couple of them. Yeah, perfect. Um, so the Nile turning into blood um, was an attack against Hoppy, H-A-P-I. I think Happy is better. Uh. <laughs> Should be better. <laughs> um, the Happy God. The Nile, the Nile God. Yeah. God of the Nile. Well, the Nile was the, the major economic and the mm -hmm. life source to the Egyptian people. So the Nile had money attached to it and yeah. had economy, but also had had a water brings life, whether yeah. you know, it, it you know produces food because of watering plants or whatever. So so it had a major economic but also life source. Mm-hmm. And Jake pointed out several weeks ago, and I think it's a great point that um, turning to blood also calls back to all of the um, Israelite babies who were killed in the Nile. Yes. Um, it's like saying the, the blood's on your hands. Yeah. And I don't have the name in front of me because I was just researching all over the place this last week on this subject. There's another God, the God over death. And Osiris, Osiris, mm -hmm. uh, Osiri or Osiris, Osiris, Osiris. Yeah, Osiris. Okay, the cult of Osiris. Yes. Yeah, so the Osiris God uh, is the God that controls death, or I mm -hmm. guess would control life and mm -hmm. death, um, yeah. or life into death. And so the idea there, if it's Osiris, then the Nile turning to blood, and then the correlation back to the Israelites firstborn. Yeah. Then that's a reminder that actually God is even over that. So there's like kind of a double whammy with that play. I like it. Osiris, yeah, Osiris is directly attacked with the frogs coming out of the Nile because her headdress was that of a frog. That's Heket. That's Heket. Yeah, Heket. Yeah. Heket. Fertility God. So again you lose fertility and your civilization doesn't last long. Right. And so right. Hecate is the God of fertility, which I don't know why a frog is the symbol of fertility. Although I do know in other religions, the frog is a deity or deitized form. And so you'll go into some Hindu temples and such. And so you'll see statues of frogs around that mean, mean things. And so the Egyptian god Hecate, the frogs, then God is bigger than Hecate. Well, then you have others like the gnats or the lice from the earth where Geb is the Egyptian god of earth. And so the bugs of the earth, it's actually the dust that is created from the gnats. So the dust from the gnats is actually the the plague or the, the idea that the Egyptian God was the Geb or Jeb. Then Kepri is 
the swarm of flies. So in the flies and you had the fleas and then the flies. And so then God is greater than that of creation or such. And so you have Kepri. Hathor, Hathor is Egyptian goddess of love and protection. And so the death of cattle and livestock, many times Hathor was depicted with a cows or, or a, a, a head of livestock. When I think of love, I think of a head of a cow. Mm. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> but they did <laughs> that's what maybe you're just a steak lover i love steak and so therefore yeah there you go uh, isis this is an interesting one because isis turns into the god of diana in roman history but isis is and god the goddess of diana is the goddess of fertility at that point but isis is also the god of of medicinal uh, and peace, medicine and peace. And so Isis becomes the boils and sores. Um, Nut is the hail. Seth is the locust. And Ra, as Jake mentioned, is the sun turning to darkness. And then there's Osiris, which is again attributed to the final death of the firstborn. But I would, I would agree with this other depiction that I pulled out that, that possibly the ultimate power of Egypt and how to break Pharaoh was to kill the firstborn, including his firstborn. And so Pharaoh being the God at the end is probably more, I would say, in matches for me, although Osiris matches for me too, so... But the main point of the plagues, just to conclude, the real meaning of the plagues is that God is bigger right, than any of your Egyptian gods. But Jake, you brought up an important point that is beyond just that, that the Egyptians needed to know that God was bigger than every Egyptian god. There's an important aspect of the Israelites that we can't miss here. Israelite people have never been monotheists. Well, they are They're, now. Jews would be monotheists. I'm sorry. In the before before exile, the second exile. Yeah. Okay. Even up into uh, probably, if I would, almost all the way to the Masoretes in 800. I think you still saw some kind of tremors of, of other gods, but the, the Hebrew people, especially here, and then throughout all of, I think, scripture that we have connected, mm-hmm. they were never monotheists. They were just single God worshipers. Right. right. And so as some people will say that they will, that God is trying to show God's power to the Egyptians. This story wasn't written for the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. Um, they probably have, at the time, never read it. And so mm-hmm. they're Why saying, would they? 
Yeah, why wouldn't yeah. they? Right. But God is saying that God is bigger than any God. Yeah. Then if you put their context into exile, you have a cultural mashing of gods. And that's why right. ISIS will travel over to Diana, which will turn into, I believe, Athena. Um, if I'm getting my gods right. Uh, <laughs> they believed in actual deities that God was bigger than. And it was more common. Yeah. I think it's more common than our current reality of God and religion that polytheism is reserved for those other religions. Vedics. Yeah, for the Vedics, not for the monotheists. That's not for us. It's reserved for them. So it's for the Hindus or the the Buddhist or the or the combination of the two. Um, it's for those Eastern religions, polytheism, that's what that's for. Uh, yet we know that God the rock, God the stone, God the, the water, God the sun, those were names that even somebody like Abraham would have used for God. So there's an illusion even in some scriptures that you could see that that definitely uh, God is attributed to other. And that's why we see this, uh, the Shema, you know, basically is I'm the Lord, I'm the Lord to God, I'm one. Um, that's one why them we see all that. together. Right. And so I think if we wanted to correlate it today, it, it, would, it would look a lot like pantheists. Mm -hmm. And... Christianity changed when William of Occam had Occam's razor that right. that God or something was not behind every rock falling, right? It just happened by nature. Right. So that's when our minds started to shift from the supernatural to the creative world. Right. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to do something special. Sheree, did you have something to add? Well, I had a thought. Um, yes, please. Thinking about how um, Exodus addresses that God is greater than all of the Egyptian gods. Um, I think that maybe mirrors something that's happening in Genesis as well, um, because Genesis would have also been um, compiled during the exile. And um, right. there's um, significant similarities between the Hebrew Genesis story and um, the Babylonian uh, creation story. Um, right. But there are some important differences that um, are used to show our God is different. Our God doesn't need to destroy things in order to create. Our God can just create things. Um, yeah. And I think we have the same sort of thing going on here in Exodus. Thanks, you two. Really appreciate your thoughts again. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We held a crowd tonight, so I'm really glad. Good night, everybody, and have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your evening and end of the week. Take care.